Are we all going to stay healthy? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. Let's stand and sing our praises to our God together. My worship team members have spent all morning threatening me that they're about to go throw up. And they're all kidding. (laughs) A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never
recite the Apostles' Creed now together, which you'll see on the screens in front of you. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son. Jesus, our Savior, I believe in God, our Father, I believe in Christ, the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise Eternal, I believe in the virgin birth, I believe. 
believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. Stand up. 
Please be seated. Father, it is an amazing thing. Think about the way you've made for us in Christ. A way made through suffering and sacrifice. A way made through humility and death. How could we ever begin to thank you enough? We recognize that the most powerful gratitude we can give is is to give you our lives. To trust you with with our lives, the burdens, the struggles, the concerns, every part of our being. And as we come to this time of prayer, this is exactly what we want to do. We lay before you all of the burdens of our lives and acknowledge that we need you. We pray for those who are struggling with grief. We we pray for those struggling with health issues with pain in the various ways it comes. We know that right now there's a lot of sickness up on campus. We pray, Father, for those who are wrestling with financial issues, with decisions about the future, relational issues. So many things. In this moment of silence now, hear our prayers. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but for uh, the wider ministry of your church. We thank you for Operation Christmas Child and for organizations like Samaritan's Purse and others who are reaching out to the world. We pray your grace upon this ministry and, and for all the ways in which you are at work in it and in others. We thank you for the money that we collected through the Five and Two program to help with children in villages, we pray that you will bless those funds. We pray, Father, for the church at Orchard Park, the Wesleyan Church there, and Pastor Dan Jones. We ask that your blessing and your grace would be upon this congregation of believers. Pour out your spirit on them, that they may bear witness to you as they love each other and as they love their community and as they love the world. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for the wider world, the needs, the burdens of people. And in this moment of silence, hear our prayers for our nation, for our world. Father, today churches around the world are gathering to specifically pray for the persecuted church. We have been 
thinking about the persecuted church each week for quite a while. But today we join our brothers and sisters. and We pray for them. For every place where there is oppression and persecution, threats, innuendos. Lord, help your people around the world in these difficult places to have strength that only you can give, to trust you, to know that we, are, we care for them, we're praying for them, and do something miraculous as they witness. Father, give us a new perspective on what is really important about life. Help us to see others the way you do. Teach us, teach us humility and faith. Teach us to love, to serve. Teach us, change us, transform us to be like Jesus. It's in his name that we offer our prayers, knowing that you hear our prayers. Knowing that you answer our prayers in the way you know is best. Amen. The Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Ammon, was king of Judah. Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to, the, all, to all the idolatrous priests. For they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun, moon, and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech. And I will destroy those who used to worship me, but now no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessings. They think the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. That terrible day of the Lord is near. Gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Gaza and Ashkelon will be abandoned. Ashdod and Ekron torn down. Moab and Ammon will be destroyed. Ethiopians also, says the Lord, and the Lord will destroy the land of Assyria. What sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime? It refuses all correction. It does not trust in the Lord or draw near to its God. Its leaders are like roaring lions. Its judges are like ravenous wolves. Its priests are arrogant liars. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. On that day, I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. On that day, you will no longer be rebels against me. Those who are left will be the lowly and humble, for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. 
The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will live among you. At last your troubles will be over, and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will, proclaim, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth, as I restore your fortunes before the very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. So I mentioned in uh, my prayer that there's a lot of sickness on campus. At this point, there are at least 100 students who have this, who have this gastrointestinal bug, and uh, it's not pretty. And so we really didn't want to do anything to perpetuate that. So even though it says in the bulletin we're going to have a communion today, we thought maybe it would be wise to postpone that for a week. So we'll plan that for next week. We also decided maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to greet Today, unless we sort of shook hands with our elbows or something. Uh, we talked about wearing masks and vinyl gloves, latex gloves. thought maybe that wouldn't communicate so well. But, but um, so we just want to be cautious about, uh, about that. But we are in the, um, in the second, beginning of the second week today of our three-week prayer vigil. Hopefully some of you have had a chance to uh, be in the prayer room. If you haven't, let me encourage you to do that. You can sign up on the church website, hwchurch.org. Uh, you can sign up actually after the service in the back this morning if you want, but it's uh, on your phone or tablet or computer. You can sign up for that. And uh, it's been great to see people coming in and out and hearing a few stories about what God's doing as people have come to pray. But so we want to encourage you, if you haven't yet or even if you have, to sign up for another hour and uh, be a part of that. Uh, we have a short video we want to show you, just another video of testimonies some people about prayer. And then uh, Jess Romance is going to share about Operation Christmas Child. morning. I am here to extend an invitation to all of you to join us at our packing party for Operation Christmas Child on Wednesday night. We will be in the foyer over the um, Christian Education Building behind here. 
And from 6 to 7, we will pack. Don't feel like you have to commit all that time, but if you can come any time during that time or come the whole time, that would be great too. And between 6 and 7, we'll be packing boxes. And then at 7 o'clock, we'll have a time of prayer and a time of dedication for those boxes and the children that will receive them. Last year, we had an opportunity to do this for the first time, and it was really a neat opportunity for a lot of different people to be in the same place at the same time with a common goal. And it was, it was really neat to see old, young, and all in between and it, it was a time of praise and, and worship, um, kind of unintentionally, but it, it became that. So we would like you to come if you can. If you can't, there are some other ways that you can help. You can pack your own box. There are boxes that you can use over on the table in the foyer over here. Um, you can pack your own. They are due next Sunday, but if you're like me and wait to the last minute for everything, I won't be taking them until Monday night, so you could just drop them off sometime Monday morning, and I will get them where they need to go. Um, another way is to donate things for our packing party. We had a generous donation of stuffed animals, and so we were kind of set there, but we need school supplies, toothbrushes, socks, toys, you name it, well, we can put it in the boxes. Um, and the other way is to donate money. If you don't want to be part of it, can't be part of it, um, the shipping did go up to $9 a box, which seems like a lot. But another way that you could help was to donate money. You can drop it off in the foyer or to me or to Lori Smalley, and we will use that money for the packing party and for shipping. So if you have any other questions, you can see me or Lori at any time, and we'd love for everybody to be part of this event. Thank you. Do you ever have um, one of those moments when you'd like a do-over? You know, why did I say that? Why didn't I say that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I do that? I believe me, when I was in school, I had many of those moments after I walked out of an exam. Oh, I'd like a do-over studying for that. You probably have never experienced that. And quite frankly, there's a lot of Sundays when I get in my car and drive home that I think about wanting a do-over. Think, oh, I forgot to say that. Or I, did I really say that? I didn't mean to say that. Or, you know, just I, I missed something. And, and I have a lot of those kinds of weeks where I wrestle with that. And as part of my, part of my process is having to let that go. But last week was one of those weeks, particularly. We talked about Habakkuk. And I felt like it hit me Sunday after church. Of course, it always comes to you after church, right? It hit me Sunday after church, Monday morning. I thought, you know, there are some things about Habakkuk that I missed. That I really should have talked about. You know, I felt like maybe I missed Habakkuk's Habakkuk's mindset. Habakkuk's uh, desires for God. Habakkuk's questions. A lot of questions by Habakkuk about what God is doing and why God is doing it or not doing it. And he's wrestling with that. And we didn't really talk about the fact that God doesn't run from those questions. God embraces Habakkuk's questions. In fact, it's the questions that lead to the end of the book where we have answers. Where Habakkuk finally gets to the end after how long, O Lord, why, O Lord, why not, O Lord. He gets to the end, he says, Lord, whatever. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. But there's still underneath that, that sort of, if if you don't do something, I'm going to trust you. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to trust you. And there is this if kind of mindset to Habakkuk. When you get to Zephaniah, there is no more if. God, there there aren't questions in Zephaniah. 
It is simply God saying, I'm going to do this. And you need to know I'm going to do this. The first chapter, we just read just a bits of it today. But the first chapter is, is pretty strong language by God. He begins by simply saying, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That's pretty strong language. And then you get to the verse 18 and he says, he will make a terrifying end of all the people of the earth. Those are the kinds of things that we hear from God and it worries us. It bothers us. We think, what kind of God is this? I thought God was nice. That didn't sound so nice. And the truth of the matter is, God is is addressing the sin of Judah, the sin of his people. And, he, and he, he does that because he knows un, that something they don't know, they aren't realizing, they aren't admitting how destructive sin is. And God addresses that and he says, look, I'm going to have to deal with this. And it's so destructive that you can't do it by saying, let me give you a little, little space in the timeout chair. This is serious stuff. This is life and death stuff. This is like playing with, uh, playing by the nest of poisonous snakes kinds of stuff. And God needs to wake them up. He needs to shock them. And maybe, maybe God needs to wake up and shock you and me. Maybe we don't take it seriously enough. In fact, I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons this kind of language from God bothers us so much is because... We don't take sin as seriously as God does. And we don't think God takes it all that seriously. There's one place in here where God says to them, you don't think I will do anything, either good or bad. You just think, I don't care. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I don't really, I don't really care what you do. I, I'm, I'm not really paying attention to you. And God is saying to them, I'm paying attention. I care. It matters. Because it's destructive. Now, in a lot of the prophets, the, the sin that they're describing is injustice. Violence. Perjury. Uh, all the ways in which uh, those who have power manipulate those who don't. And, and all the ways in which the wealthy take advantage of the poor. And, and all the kinds of class structure of society. But in this prophecy, it's really not about injustice. He just lightly mentions it once or twice. But it's in the context of something deeper. And that is idolatry. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he specifically says, I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I'll put an end to all the idolatrous priests. They go up to their roofs, they bow down to the sun, the moon, the stars, they claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Moloch too. It's idolatry that's Judah's problem. During the reign of Manasseh, about a 50-year reign, and some of his, the kings that follow him, Israel is just completely immersed into idolatry. And as Zephaniah comes on the scene, and you saw in the, in the beginning that he is a descendant of Hezekiah, who was a king, so he has royalty in his blood. He knows all of the things that have happened. He understands how the things work. And he comes on the scene after, as this is in the middle of this, and this is his word to Judah, this idolatry. What he's trying to help us understand is that idolatry is destructive because idolatry focuses on us. 
Now, we tend to think we don't really think about idols because idols are those pieces of wood or gold or silver or something that people bow down and worship. And most of us don't do that. But really, the definition of idolatry is, is something around which your life orbits that's not God. If your life is orbiting around something other than God, it's idolatry. It doesn't have to be a, a block of wood or some, or some stone or some metal that's been shaped into an image. A lot of times our idols are things like relationships and money and power and success and accomplishments. When those things are what drive us, when those are the things around which our life orbits, we will make decisions that hurt people because we want to get more and more and more of that. And idolatry doesn't just destroy us, it destroys our relationships because we manipulate people and we use people. It destroys our witness Because we're saying to people, you know, this is what God's people look like. This is what God's people do. We don't care that much about God. God's on the periphery of our lives. In the end, idolatry is saying, God is not good enough. I need this stuff instead. God is not enough. God can't really be trusted. When you think about idolatry, what it really comes down to, it's a shortcut. You look at creation story. God created human beings for flourishing, for life, for joy, for peace, for for abundance. And you look at at the creation story and it's all about abundance. It's all about the blessings of God and all of those things that God wants to do for his people. And he has put that desire in our hearts to experience that. Jesus says, I came to give you abundant life. I came to give you a life of flourishing. That's why I'm here. And that's within every single one of us. But when sin enters the picture... Now we start thinking we can find that stuff other ways. And one of the things that we do then is instead of waiting on God, instead of going through the journey and the process with God of getting to the end that God has promised us, we think there's a shortcut to it. We think there's a faster way. Because quite frankly, we don't want to wait. We don't want to, we don't want to achieve that end through pain and struggle and difficulty and trusting and all the th- ways in which God brings us to that. Let's find the shortest, safest, easiest, quickest, least demanding route that we possibly can. And our refusal to trust God and to wait on God always leads to idolatry. In Exodus 32, people of Israel are in the wilderness and God has Moses come up on the mountain. And for 40 days, Moses is on the mountain with God and the people become impatient. They say, we don't even know what's happened to this guy, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt. So here's what we want to do. Aaron, build us a golden calf and we'll worship this God. Because we want something right in front of us. We want something now. We want something immediate. Let's take the shortcut. Because we don't really want to wait for God. When Jesus is in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 
And he's being tempted by Satan. Every single temptation is to take a shortcut. In essence, he is saying to Jesus throughout this, you don't really want to go through all this pain and suffering, do you? You don't really want to go to a cross, do you? You don't really want to to let people think that you're weak and vulnerable, do you? I can give you what you want now. And it is the temptation in front of every single one of us all the time. The problem is... What idols lead us to is not a faster route to the blessings of God. Idols lead us to the exact opposite of everything God desires to give for us. Because idolatry cuts us off from God. Idolatry cuts us off from the source of life and flourishing and blessing. And it leads us to simply what we can do ourselves. It's a false image. And Zephaniah is saying to the people of Israel, Zephaniah is saying to you and me, why are you settling for this when you can have this? And so you get to the end of this prophecy and he describes the day to come. That the day of the Lord is mentioned 12 times in Zephaniah's prophecy, more than any other prophecy. And he keeps talking about this day of the Lord that God has promised. He keeps talking about where this journey with God is leading us. Why waiting for him is worth it. And you get to the end and he talks about the glorious things that God is going to do for his people. In verse 18 of chapter 3, he says... I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will be disgraced no more. And I'll deal severely with all who have opposed you and oppressed you. I will save the weak and the helpless ones. And I'll bring together those who are chased away. And on that day, I'll gather you and bring you home again. And I'll give you a good name. A name of distinction among all the nations of the earth. And I will restore your fortunes. What he's saying is, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you to the place that you've always been yearning for, what you've been wanting all of your life. I'm going to bring you home to that place of security and hope and love and grace, everything that we want home to be. And even if your experience with home isn't that in your home, the reason it bothers us that that's that's not what our home is is because that's what we want home to be. And God says, this is what home with me looks like. Restoration, renewal, blessing, flourishing, life, everything that in the depths of your being you have always wanted. That's what I'm leading you to. Will you trust me? And God says, I'll be there with you. That's what makes it home. I'm with you. I was in the prayer room this week with the elders, and we spent some time just sort of doing our own thing for a little bit. And I spent about 10 or 15 minutes at the kneeling bench pondering this picture of Jesus, the shepherd, holding a lamb. I think it's from the the story of, uh, of the lost lamb. And in this image, you see... You see the shepherd holding this lamb close, embracing it, so happy that he found the wayward lamb and brought this lamb home. 
And you can see the intimacy. You can see the joy. You can see how he feels for that lamb. And you and and I are that lamb. We're that lamb that Jesus holds and keeps close to him. This is what he wants for us. This is his desire for us. This is his plan for us. If we'll let him. The problem is, a lot of times, instead of being like that lamb that allows him to to hold him close, we're like our little puppy that we have. We've had this little puppy about four weeks. He's about 12 weeks old, and he's, he's a cuddler, and we love that fact that he's a cuddler. But here's the thing. He's also a wiggler. We called him Wrigley after the baseball field because our boys are Cubs fans. So we called him Wrigley, but we really should have called him Wiggly because that's what he is. I mean, when you try to pick him up and he, he is, he's wrestling with you and wiggling in your arms, and it's a little bit dangerous because you almost drop him. We, we all have almost dropped him. And, and he, what he doesn't realize is that by doing that, he's creating, putting himself in a place of peril. He thinks that by, us, by wriggling out of our arms, he is going to get what he wants. But that's because he hasn't yet come to the place where he knows us. He doesn't quite yet trust us. He's learning. And we're getting there. He's a very loving little puppy. But in his little puppy mind, he hasn't quite figured out that us holding him is good for him. It's in his best interest. And to let us put him down gently is what we're trying to do. And I just think about how many times you and I are like Wrigley. And we're wiggling in God's arms thinking we know better. And and we don't realize we're putting ourselves in peril. And God is saying, look, I've got more for you than that. I've got things better for you than that. And and you have to let me, you have to trust me and wait on me. And believe that what the end that I'm bringing you to is so much more glorious than you could ever imagine on your own. But the question in my mind as I've been thinking about this is, how do you get to that point where you begin to give up your idols? Because that's what's holding us back, our idols. And most of the idols that we struggle with are not bad. They're just in the wrong place. They're, They're just in the center of our lives instead of being in the periphery of our lives. And in chapter 2, verse 11, God says, I'm going to destroy the idols of these people. And, and the word destroy makes us sound like God is going to take a hammer and smash the idols. He's going to pick them up and smash them on the ground. But I think, but this word actually doesn't mean destroy. It, the nuance of the word is that it means to starve, to famish. And God is saying, not I'm going to pick up these idols and smash them. What he's saying is, I'm going to starve the idols. And I'm going to make it so that these idols become far less appealing to you. Far less interesting to you. As they begin to shrivel up and die. And how do we do that? How do we starve the idols? By focusing our attention on Jesus. This is why he gives us his word. 
So when we read his word, the promises of God get into us and we begin to believe those promises. In chapter, beginning of chapter 2, he says, I want you to gather together. I want you to gather yourselves together. And when we think of gathering, we probably tend to think of doing what we're doing today, where we all come together in one place and, and we're, we're in here in worship. And I think that's a big part of it. But when I thought about gathering together, it, it made me think about, about what I hear on basketball games that I'm watching where a player is maybe running down the court and, and a, a teammate throws the, throws the player a pass and, and what, he's, what the announcer will say is that she set her feet. She had to gather herself before she could take the shot. And, and so this player, what does that mean? It means that the player is off balance. It means that the player doesn't have a good grip on the ball. It means that her feet aren't where they should be. And so if she were to do nothing with that and just throw a shot up from that point, it would be a reckless heave that would probably not have any chance of going in. But to gather herself is to stop, set her feet, get her balance right, knees bent, and get the ball and grip the ball correctly so that in that moment, after gathering herself, she now is prepared to jump and to take the shot. And the odds of it going in have risen significantly because she gathered herself. The prophet's calling you and me to gather ourselves, individually and corporately. And that means there is a recognition that we're not where we should be, that things are askew, that something needs to be different. To gather ourselves is to turn ourselves toward God and to focus on him and to ask him to make things right. And this is why we do these prayer vigils every year. Because it's an opportunity for us to step back from all of the things of life, all the distractions, all the noise that we talked about last week, all the things that keep us, that 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 burden us and, and lead us toward idolatry. It's a chance to step back and to say, that's who God is. I see it now. That's what God is promising me. I see it now. That's what's wrong with my life. I get it now. And the, the end is, we will never change if we don't want to. We will never change if we don't want to. And it's not that we change ourselves. God changes us, but he cannot change us if we don't want him to change us. And the only way we will want God to change us is if we begin to understand more and more of who God is. That he is a God who has great plans for us. He is a God who loves us, who cherishes us, who finds delight and joy in us, who wants everything that he created us to experience for us. And he calls us to trust him. How do we know that God can be trusted? Look at what he did for us. Look at everything he continues to do for us. Look at the great plans that he has for us. The question this morning is, 
is not so much does God have great plans for us, but maybe the question is, do we believe it? Do we believe it enough to ask God to starve our idols? To transform our way of thinking? To make us new and whole? Even if life doesn't turn out the way we want it to. Even if it means going the hard road, the road less traveled, the journey through difficulties and struggles and pain even if, do we trust him? Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us and your love to us. Give us a desire, a want to you to starve our idols and to make us new. And we pray this through the grace of Christ. Amen. In that last section of Zephaniah's prophecy, he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem. There is this sense in which singing is, and celebrating is a part of what it means to focus our attention on God. And the day is coming when we will sing with the saints through the ages. And if we can sing then, we ought to sing now. And so as we conclude our service this morning, we're going to sing a couple of songs that just, that just draw us closer to God and give us the opportunity to lift our voices in praise and adoration and affirmation of who God is. Please stand with us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is God, whoever lives in peace for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written.
the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.